Captain Edward J. Murphy was an engineer in the United States Air Force. Murphy was involved in various engineer tests throughout his career, both in the military and in the private sector. But there was one test, however, that everyone remembers. It was 1949, and the place was Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California. The officers at the base were conducting projects MX-981. Sounds like you're a pretty standard, run-of-the-mill military project. But its goal was actually pretty lofty. They wanted to determine just how much force a human being could withstand. No, this wasn't uh, an old-school slapping contest to see who would say uncle first. No, rather, the officers hoped to apply their findings to future airplane designs. So it's, it's hard to determine how much force a human being can withstand without using, well, a human being. And the brave sap was Colonel John Paul Stapp, a physician who volunteered to abort a rocket sled that traveled 200 miles an hour down a half-mile track and came to an abrupt stop in less than a second. Dr. Stapp, believe it or not, he's a doctor, Dr. Stapp did this repeatedly over several months. Several months. He suffered concussions, he had broken blood vessels in his eyes and other injuries. Enter now Captain Murphy. And he brought along with him these sensors that he could attach to the harness of Colonel Stapp to measure the exact amount of force, or Gs, that took place when the rocket stopped. Sounds like a pretty obvious idea. You need to measure how much force is actually happening. Well, it's an obvious idea if it works. Murphy hooked up the sensors to the harness, and the test commenced again, but the results came back nothing. It came back zero Gs. Well, the mishap was that each sensor was hooked up in the wrong way. Apparently, there were two ways to do it, and each sensor was installed incorrectly. And frustrated, Captain Murphy blamed the technician on the site, saying about him something along the lines of, if there are two ways to do something, and one of those ways will result in disaster, he'll do it that way. Something about intelligent insults that cut a little bit deeper than regular ones. Well, soon thereafter, Colonel Stapp, the guy who was strapped into the rocket, recognized what Murphy said to be true for a lot of life. So during one press conference, he said that the good safety record of the project was due to the team's awareness of what he called Murphy's Law. That whatever can go wrong will go wrong. So have you ever wondered if the Murphy of Murphy's Law is a real guy? He is. Have you ever been through a season of life when you felt like you were the definition of Murphy's Law? That whatever could go wrong did go wrong. Maybe you're in that season right now. Or maybe you can look back on that season and kind of chuckle. But it's, it is sort of a nervous laughter, right? Because you weren't laughing when it was going on. So we all go through these seasons of Murphy's Law, and 
And it reminds me of a joke that I heard once about the pessimist and the optimist. The pessimist says, things are awful. They can't possibly get any worse. The optimist says, oh, yes, they can get worse. (laughs) Well, like Dr. Stapp, there is wisdom in thinking through the potential consequences of our plans and trying our best to avoid those bad consequences. But you know, there are just some things we can't foresee. The book of James, chapter 4, verse 14, says that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Man, is that true. So at this stop in our story of Genesis, God's promise to bless all the nations through one family, that promise, it seems to go from bad to worse. It seems to follow Murphy's Law. Events unfold in such a way that it seems that God isn't watching and God isn't working. And that's sort of the despair of Murphy's Law. It feels purposeless. It feels random. It feels like there is no goal. It feels like there is no hope. So it's at that moment. That's when it's all the more important to fight to remember, to fight, to believe the truth, which is that main point you see printed in your bulletin. To believe that truth, that God is always watching and God is always working. So when you seem to be in the dark, when God's care and God's work aren't clearly visible to you, where will you turn? We're going to cover three chapters in Genesis today. Chapter 37, 38, and 39. Chapter 37 will show the lights dimming on the family of promise. How the choices of each character led to dark situations. And yet how the hand of the Lord was still working. So we think of chapter 37 as kind of setting up the rest of the narrative. And then we see in chapters 38 and 39... They give two different examples of members of this family who are both in dark situations. Dark situations where God seems absent. So one is a negative example and the other is a positive example. So throughout our time and especially at the end of our time together, we want to bring this home for us as we always do. This is written here for our instruction. And these chapters fit into the larger storyline of the Bible that's centered on Jesus Christ. So let's look at Genesis chapter 37. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, and you will be helped if you follow along in a Bible, uh, you'll find it on page 31, Genesis chapter 37. And one of our goals of our time in Genesis has been to keep the big story of the book in mind as we go. And that's easier to do when you cover it in a little bit larger of chunks. So Genesis shows a holy God, a holy God who in mercy makes promises to bring sinful people back to himself. So throughout the book, 
we see God working to fulfill this promise. And we see God working in those he made the promise to. So after Adam and Noah fail in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, God makes a new promise or a new covenant with Abram, later called Abraham. And among other things, he promises Abraham that through his descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so really then, chapters 12 to the end of the book, chapter 50, is a family history talking about Abraham's descendants and how the promise to him gets passed down to each generation as they're looking for that ultimate descendant who will bless all the nations. So through all the failures of his people, God keeps his promise going and he works in them to love and trust him more. We see this in Abraham. We see this in Abraham's son, Isaac. And last week we saw this in Isaac's son, Jacob, who's renamed Israel. God's promise will now carry on through Jacob's 12 sons. This is what happens in the last part of Genesis. The last part of Genesis will show how God transforms these sons into faithful covenant partners. And he'll do this through one son in particular, Joseph. You probably are familiar with him. He has a famous story. This last part of Genesis will also reveal how the children of Israel end up in the place where they'll be held captive for 400 years in Egypt. And God had told Abraham that this was going to happen back in Genesis chapter 15. So the last part of Genesis shows how they got there. Maybe most importantly, though, this last part of Genesis will show how the line of the Messiah, that promised descendant, will continue. And that promise will uphold. So here we are at the beginning of the ending in chapter 37. And things go dark before they get bright. That's a pattern familiar to the Bible. And I think the story speaks so well for itself that it's worth taking time to read it. So you follow along as I read Genesis 37, and I'll make a couple of comments as I read. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. That would be Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Maybe Joseph's a bit of a tattletale. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors, literally a robe with long sleeves or a robe with many ornaments. It communicates royalty that Jacob wanted Joseph to receive that family inheritance. Verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. 
he said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. See, this is the first dream in Genesis in which God doesn't speak. And soon, God's only going to speak through events. Verse 8. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Maybe he should have kept this one to himself. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now, an isolated dream, one dream, could be misinterpreted. But two dreams with the same meaning, that was another thing. Verse 10. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him to one of the pits. So it would be a, a cistern hewn out of rock, maybe six to twenty feet deep. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, that is the oldest, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. No remorse. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, ball, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders, Midianite and Ishmaelite are interchangeable, then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew up Joseph out and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. 
they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Each character in Genesis 37 put his hand on the dial to dim the lights. Jacob, or Israel, he learned some lessons from his father. For example, he listens to Joseph's dream. He mourns over his lost son. He learned some lessons from Isaac, but he followed Isaac in some other things, some of the same sins. Like Isaac, Jacob played favorites, and it affected his other sons. And the very first thing that brought about his son's hatred of Joseph wasn't something that Joseph did. It was something that their dad did. He loved Joseph more than he loved them. And to make matters worse, Jacob lacks any kind of sense of self-awareness. He is completely unaware that his sons hate Joseph. And he sends Joseph to his brothers in Shechem in verse 13, somehow forgetting that these are the same guys who have murdered people in the past. And they hate their brother. And now Jacob's sending Joseph there. Dim the lights. We also see Reuben, the oldest son. He would have been answerable for what had happened to Joseph, his younger brother. Reuben was the one who should have inherited the inheritance, the promise from Jacob. But he was already out of his dad's favor. You know why? He slept with his dad's concubines back in chapter 35. Now, what he did with Joseph could either reinstate him or ruin him forever. And Reuben is a failure. He saves Joseph from death, sure, but he's interested only in himself. He's not willing to go to any extent from his brother. Reuben asks, well, where should I, where shall I go? Well, Reuben, maybe you could chase after these merchants and try to save your brother. Dim the lights. Well, Judah is not much different than Reuben. With Reuben out of his dad's favor and Simeon and Levi being murderers, Judah is next in line for the family inheritance, even as the fourth born. But Judah is cold and calculating. 
in saving Joseph from death, he makes a quick buck and puts his brother in a situation where he was as good as dead. Then the lights. We can't let Joseph off the hook here either. In this last part of Genesis, Joseph is presented as an overall noble character. But he starts off pretty immature. We get the sense that he's a spoiled brat, and he likes to tell it to his brothers. So Joseph tattles, he boasts, he parades. But we'll see what happens when Joseph enters a dark season in his life. So the lights have dimmed. You look at chapter 37 of Genesis, you look at Genesis as really a whole, it seems that no matter what characters you put in and out, there seems to be always sinful, dysfunctional people. And God is still working through them. So I wonder for you, do you ever feel like you're beyond saving? Do you ever feel like you have too messy of a past, that you are too messy right now? Friends, God delights in redeeming those kind of people. There is no Christian, there is no Christian who has come to God bringing anything of their own to the table beside their sin. No, what makes us whole What makes us whole is all of Christ. It's Christ's merit. It's Christ's death. It's Christ's resurrection. God's going to use and redeem, bring back to himself these kinds of messy people. He does this in Genesis, and he still does that today. So, friend, turn from your way of living and submit to Christ as the Savior from the judgment of your sin and submit to him as Lord of your life. So yes, God is still working. He's still working in the circumstances of this dysfunctional family. Notice that it's not coincidence that Joseph was delayed at Shechem. This allowed him to arrive at his brother's location at the same time as the Ishmaelite merchants. It's not coincidence that at the spur of the moment, Judah decides that it would be a good idea to sell Joseph to slavery instead of killing him. It's not coincidence that Joseph ends up in Egypt, and in all places in Egypt, he ends up in Potiphar's house, a high-ranking official. And in all places in Potiphar's house, he ends up not in the field, but in his home. These things aren't coincidence. These are signs of God's providence. We're not quite sure what God is doing yet, but he is doing something. But just when things are getting really good, just when we're on the edge of our seats, the author changes the channel. So in chapter 38, the focus shifts from Joseph as we turn to see his brother, Judah, in the dark. So we'll see what happens in the story. You can let your eyes kind of glean over uh, the text of chapter 38. So Judah's story of a dark time in his life stems not from events outside of his control. A dark time in his life 
is really his own fault. It's a result of his own choices. Judah got himself entangled too deeply into the life of Canaanites who didn't worship the Lord. He took a Canaanite for a wife, and then he raised two wicked children who were so bad that the Lord struck both of them down. And while it was custom to provide a husband from the family for a widow, Judah refused to do that for his son's widow, Tamar. And after Judah's wife died, Judah makes another choice, this time to solicit a prostitute. Judah's creating Murphy's Law for himself. And it turned out that this wasn't a prostitute. It was Tamar in disguise. And as twisted as this is, Tamar was so committed to her Israelite family that she must have thought this was the only way she could have children in this family. While Judah catches wind that Tamar is pregnant through prostitution, to which he replies that she should be burned alive. You talk about a double standard. Judah's guilty of the same exact thing. But Tamar has proof that she is pregnant by Judah because Judah gave her his seal and cord. See that in verse 18. So basically what happened is Judah went to a brothel and he left behind his credit card. It's with his back against the wall that Judah admits his sin. See verse 26. And the real essence of that is she is righteous, not I. And the chapter closes with Tamar having twins, Perez and Zerah. So Judah made choice after choice as if God wasn't watching. As if God didn't care about his actions. He made choice after choice as if God had no regard to what is right and wrong. And even when Judah begins to feel the consequences for his sinful choices, he doesn't reflect. It doesn't cause him to stop and think for a second. He doesn't feel remorse. His sons died for their sin, and Judah doesn't pause. He remains selfish, and he seeks out a prostitute. Friends, in light of Judah's actions here, I think we should remember three things. Three things. One, God always sees. God always sees. Does anybody here like singing in the car? I, I enjoy singing in the car. I will dance to a good beat. I will play air guitar to that solo of Don't Stop Believin'. I will pretend my dashboard is a drum set. But what happens when you're singing in the car and then you pull up to a red light and someone's next to you? <laughs> you play it cool. Now someone's watching you. And even though that per you will likely never see that person again in your life, at least for me, I usually stop singing. <laughs> but it just goes to show us, if we temper our behavior based on the fact that other people are watching, then how much more should we temper our behavior if we know that God is watching? 
Where can I go from your presence? King David asks in Psalm 139. That should comfort us. And at the same time, that should sober us. God is always watching. In light of Judah's actions, number two, we should also remember that Satan and sin know when we are vulnerable. Satan and sin know when we are vulnerable. It reminds us of God's word to Cain in Genesis 4, that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for us. And the story of Judah is like the adulterous woman in the book of Proverbs who waits at every corner, who knows the best opportunities to entice people to sin. So, friends, know when you are vulnerable to make bad choices. When you leave your frustration, when you leave your discontent, when you leave your pride unchecked, you are vulnerable to sin even more. And this story relates particularly to sexual sin. Brothers and sisters, how and when are you vulnerable to this particular sin? Do you know the strategies that sin has specifically for you? When are you tempted to lust? What tempts you to lust? How do you get to these points? We have to know when we are vulnerable. Satan and sin are crafty. In light of Judah's actions, number three, we should remember that sometimes our dark seasons of our, are, are of our own making. We make them ourselves. So ultimately, Judah had no one to blame for his situation but himself. We have to take responsibility for our actions. And the question is, when we do take responsibility, when we realize the mess that we've made, will we repent? If this story and even something in the news now, like the Me Too movement, show us anything, it's that our sin will find us out. And it's God's mercy. It's God's mercy if our sin is found out here and not when you stand before him. So if you are living in sin that you have not confessed to God, bring that sin out of the darkness and into the light. Forgiveness is possible. Change is possible. Because God's son took the punishment for the sin of those who believe in him. And if you haven't done this, or if you have done it but need help with a sin, talk to me afterward. Talk to one of our elders. Talk to a Christian friend who you know. Send me an email. I don't care. Sin is too serious. Sin is too dangerous to hide it. Well, isn't it amazing that God is still working? Even through the events of chapter 38. When writing Jesus' genealogy, Matthew lists four different women in Matthew chapter 1. And Tamar is among them. It is through Tamar's children that Jesus will come. God is certainly still watching in this dark time. He works also in Judah. 
He brings Judah to repent, to see and recognize his sin, to turn from his wicked ways, to trust in God's provision. And incredibly enough, God's ultimate provision would be through Judah's own descendant in the flesh. God the Son, born of a woman, to save his people from their sins. But if you read closely, the story with Judah must take at least 20 years. Think about it. He had sons, and his sons were old enough to marry. And if that's the case, then what's been going on with Joseph for all these 20 years? Well, finally, we get the remote back, and we flip back to the channel in chapter 39. So once again, if you let your eyes glean over chapter 39... I'll give you the gist of what's going on. Joseph was sold into slavery and ends up in Potiphar's house, a high official in Egypt. And actually, you look at the first six verses of chapter 39, it shows that things aren't all that bad once he gets there. And that's because the Lord was with Joseph in verse 2. And everything Potiphar gives Joseph to do, Joseph does it really well. Even Potiphar himself recognizes that the Lord is with Joseph. Just as a side note, um, if your boss and your coworkers know that you're a Christian, and it takes, it takes you saying something about it for them to know that, if they know you are a Christian, your attitude and your work ethic are huge witnesses for Christ. I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm talking about honesty. That's just a side note. So things are going well for Joseph, but they take a turn. Joseph is young and a good-looking guy, and he catches the eye of his boss's wife. She makes a pass at him, but Joseph refuses her. She continues making passes at him, and yet Joseph still refuses her. There's one instance when she grabs Joseph's garment, is able to yank it off, but Joseph runs away. She then uses his garment as incriminating evidence that Joseph raped her. So Potiphar, her husband, has to respond to this. And he throws Joseph in prison. What normally, rape would be a capital offense. Joseph should have gotten the death penalty. And Potiphar likely knew something about his wife, that she wasn't real honest. So chapter 39 closes then with Joseph in prison. But again, the Lord is causing him to succeed. So if we still have chapter 38 in the back of our minds, then Judah's story not only serves to show how God preserves the line of the Messiah, but it also serves to contrast Joseph. So whereas Judah forgot God was watching, Joseph was convinced that God was watching. You see how he worked as a slave. He did it unto the Lord. You see how he resisted temptation from his boss's wife. You see how he lived in prison after being falsely accused. Joseph lived coram deo, a Latin phrase that means in the presence of God. Coram deo. R.C. Sproul writes that to live coram Deo is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, 
we are acting under the gaze of God. It's a life of integrity. It's a life that recognizes that there is no higher goal than to live for the glory of God. Well, whereas Judah did not take heed where he was vulnerable to sin, Joseph knew when he was vulnerable. Look at Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife in verses 8 and 9. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph's ready for this situation. And he recognizes the multiple layers of sin. That this sin in particular would abuse the trust he had with his boss. He would be sinning against his boss. That this sin in particular would violate Potiphar's and his wife's marriage. And most importantly, that this sin and any sin is wicked. It is ultimately against God. Joseph has disciplined godliness. Even when Potiphar's wife continued to come after Joseph, Joseph continued to say no. And what's even more remarkable is when you know the historical context that a slave society that Joseph lived in, it would have been filled with sexual promiscuity. This would have been expected. But Joseph says no. But even when Joseph seems trapped, he runs. Sometimes that's the only thing we can do to avoid sin. Run away. 2 Timothy 2.2 says to flee sexual immorality. So friends, pray for God's help to be disciplined like Joseph, that you would love God so much that you would run from sin. Whereas Judah created a dark situation for himself and still sinned, Joseph was in a dark situation because of events outside of his control. And yet he remained faithful. You think about it. Joseph was just sold by his brothers as if he was a piece of property. I'd be shell-shocked. But Joseph is faithful. He works unto the Lord. Joseph gets falsely accused of rape, and he ends up in prison. But Joseph trusts God enough to obey God when he's left in the dark about what God is doing in his life. Friends, sometimes we are left in the dark about what God is doing. So pray for that kind of faith. And here, Joseph is faithful in the little things, and God is going to make and charge him over being faithful in the big things. So for all the positive traits of Joseph, you look at the end of chapter 39. He's still in prison. The final word seems to be Joseph's humiliation. It's like you're at the end of the game, you just lost. And your coach is in the locker room, and he's trying to tell you all the good things you did. Trying to pump you up a little bit. But you still know, we lost. It doesn't matter, we lost. 
Is that what happens here? Well, we may not know the why of what is happening to us right now. But we know who controls it all. And we know what he is like. We know what he is capable of. We know what he has set out to do. We know that he cannot be defeated. We know that he is unchanging. We know that his grace is secure. We know that he is working. And how do we know this? How do we know this? Well, the first place we look for proof, proof of God's love and care and work in our lives, not our circumstances. Think about it. If that's where Joseph looked, he would have been driven to despair. The first place where we look for proof is God's unchanging grace. And we have an even stronger anchor than Joseph. We look at the one who endured the darkness of the father turning his face away. That darkness that was brought about by rejection and betrayal. That darkness that was brought about by false accusation. That darkness that was brought about despite innocence. But for the joy set before him, Jesus endured that darkness that we may go free. And he proved once and for all that humiliation, it's not the last word. That God is always watching and God is always working. So we turn to him. Let's pray. God, there are many things in our lives that we don't understand. When we really can't see what you are doing with us, how you are working, how you will work this for our good and for your glory. God, these are dark situations, many times of our own making because of our own sin. Help us to repent then. And God, sometimes it's because of things we can't control. But help us to remember your unchanging grace. God, that takes, that takes faith we don't have. We need your grace even to believe, even to endure. And we trust that when we are weak, you prove strong. And your grace is always sufficient. And God, our hope, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's in his name we pray. Amen.